Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Mike Brodo. Mike, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd like to begin by discussing your political socialization. So while you were growing up, did you talk about politics a lot with family or at school or with friends? Yeah, so my first political memory, I would say, was around 2004. I was in preschool. Uh, there was a presidential election that year. Uh, I don't know why I have this random memory, but I just like was the politically involved kid. I Well, the future politically involved kid I was was going up to random classmates asking if their parents were voting for Bush or Kerry. Uh, just that's the first thing that comes to me. And I remember very few conversations from that year, obviously, but I do remember one around that same time period kind of talking to my parents about the election since it was on the news and what politics was and, and whatnot. And my parents were supporting Bush and they were explaining to me why into a very basic sense. Obviously, I was, I was forward and didn't really understand too much of the policies and whatnot. Uh, but to them, what politics was about was was serving your country and kind of love of country. And my, my parents seemed to be very patriotic people. Uh, obviously, I've learned why they would vote more Republican over time, kind of values and policy preferences. But but to them at the time, they kind of explained politics to me in this positive light, which I think contrasts with the, how a lot of people today are being raised to see policy, politics in a very negative light, especially with our, our current administration and, and, and things they've been doing and how that's portrayed on the news. So that was kind of my first experience just ever talking about it. I, I was this kind of this kid that was really obsessed with the presidents and things uh, mm-hmm. growing up, maybe in like second grade. Thank you. So now to talk more broadly about systems, could you tell me about the maybe the first time that you came in contact or became familiar with the term capitalism? Just in a broad sense, maybe when I was like, probably when I was 12 is when I kind of started looking into like trying to understand policy differences and, and, and whatnot, like, you know, kind of comparing Romney and Obama. I was just like, all right, what what, is mm-hmm. the, what separates these parties, these candidates? So that's probably when I kind of first came into contact with it by middle, middle of middle school uh, learning. And, and to me at the time, it was probably just, it was definitely in a political sense, not the economic sense first. Um, so I guess it came into be of like, oh, the, the GOP is more on the capitalism side, at least at the time that that was a very, you know, lower government intervention, less government intervention in the economy, uh, free markets, you know, in a very basic sense, that was my first interaction with it. And I think my parents would talk about it a lot too. Uh, they are very big on, you know, free markets and, and kind of, I wouldn't say all like supply side economics. I don't want to get too much into the weeds like versus Keynesian, but just they're very much promotive of, you know, businesses and cutting regulations and things like that just because of their own experience. Uh, they both mm-hmm. were econ majors and, and came from pretty, pretty poor backgrounds, but were able to kind of rise up the ranks in the, in the corporate world. Uh, so that would probably be my first encounter is just, you know, middle school kind of in a political sense, just as a very basic, like pro business, private sector, government's kind of out of the way. Uh, it wasn't really anything too involved. And I think it probably just developed over time learning more about it. Mm-hmm. And what would you associate with capitalism today? Yeah, I definitely have a, a we give it a positive connotation, obviously imperfect uh, to me. Mm-hmm. It comes up with free markets, opportunity, kind of climbing the ladder. Uh, there are definitely negative aspects, like the negative aspects that would come up would kind of be like materialism and this culture that's just kind of decadent society where it's like the end all be all is goods and services and, and you only care about those things and you don't really think about like dignity and, and whatnot. And I know there's a lot of critiques on the right today, even about, about, you know, against market fundamentalism. 
but overall it's a very positive connotation, I would say. Um, uh, just because of the, the, the positive aspects that, you know, we have benefited from in this country, you know, capitalist countries. And, uh, I think very much in a broad sense, you know, I study development as my minor. I'm just looking at what capitalism has done to lift so many people out of poverty. Uh, obviously there's it's exacerbated inequalities, but on a more broad scale, uh, cumulatively, it has done a lot of positive things. So yeah, I would still say it's got positive connotations, but I also, you know, some negative aspects would come to mind right away when I think about it. Great. Thank you. So now as we kind of move into the next section that discusses your views while at Georgetown, I'm wondering if there are any classes you've taken while at school that have particularly informed your perspective. I took Intro to Women and Gender Studies. That definitely probably changed the most perspectives I've had on things. And, and weirdly enough, it's just, I think it was just how the professor structured it. We, it was, she kind of broadened it past just um, gender relations and, and talked a lot about race and just kind of power structures. And so I actually took a lot away from that class regarding like race and things like affirmative action, which I'd generally been pretty against for a while. Uh, and then I, I've come to be pretty supportive of them in a sense. Um, and that, that relates to the role of government, I just think. But it didn't really change my basis foundation. It basically kind of reshaped how I viewed those policies. So how I would distance myself, like the reason I'm still Republican, even if I'm, if I'm pretty moderate, is that I view the Democrats as kind of trying to, their end goal is to have this equality of outcome. Uh, you know, everyone's mm-hmm. kind of the same in the end. It just uh, if I had to broad stroke it, obviously not everyone believes that on that side. Yeah. Whereas I, I view the GOP generally to be kind of the party of opportunity, equal opportunity. Um, so how I kind of talk about this is that like, um, there are a lot of the Republicans right now believe that we have equality of opportunity and I don't, I don't really agree there. So I agree with the outcome is that, you know, that's why I'm a Republican, uh, that we, that yeah. should be the outcome is that we provide equality of opportunity. But I think learning that class kind of showed me that it's really not there. Like, I think I grew up with this idea, especially with my parents, like that they were kind of the example of the American dream, but obviously like they benefited from white privilege and, and things like that. So I think that class definitely shifted my perspective on what the reality was, but not necessarily like what the, what my goals were. Like I still would want programs that are equate with quality of opportunity. So like I used to view them as like an outcome thing, like, Oh, that's so unfair. Like you're just trying to make everyone equal in the end. But then I realized it was kind of a tool uh, to help people get access to things like education that would then help them move forward uh, and have the same chance at life as, you know, like a white student would. Um, so yeah, I would say mm-hmm. that's what changed my perspective the most in the classroom, at least. That sounds like a great class. Thank you. And now I'd like to switch it up a little bit and get your view on the government's relationship to its citizens by discussing a few contemporary examples. So the U.S. has a great deal of income inequality and wealth inequality, particularly along racial lines. Can you tell me how you view this situation in regards to the government's role is this something that the government should be making a priority to ameliorate? And are there any concerns if the government does make reducing inequality a priority? No, no, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily their their job to kind of come in there and try to equalize it out. Uh, but I do think they have a role in kind of addressing kind of the root causes of this. Uh, so things like, you know, you mentioned it, the racial disparity. So, you know, addressing systemic racism in, in institutions and things like that. You know, removing those barriers on equal opportunity that have exacerbated over time as income has grown, as globalization has taken a foot. And I think people that were already disadvantaged were just further 
relatively disadvantaged because they couldn't take part in this uh, in this growing economy. And you know, especially like with the turn of the century, you know, things just kind of took off with the internet and globalization and whatnot. Uh, so I don't think it's really the government's role to, you know, enhance equity and wealth. I think it's their their goal is really to protect rights. Um, and right now, people's rights are being infringed on because they don't have the same shot at that opportunity. Um, but I, I definitely am sympathetic to the cause of like addressing some of the the issues related to it. And I think that's also growing on the right. There's a lot of people, like even Senator Rubio's, you know, kind of addressing that market fundamentalism is not everything. Like you know, inequality is going to be a problem. It hurts your communities. So I'm definitely sympathetic to things like child tax credits and other ways that the government can help kind of alleviate those short-term concerns. Uh, but I think in the long run, like we are, you know, a free market system in the, in, in a sense. And I don't think that the government should be kind of dictating how the wealth is distributed. I think they should just, you know, enable systems to take place that kind of value meritocracy. I know it's hard to do, you know, it's always going to be established. If you make a lot of money, your kids are going to inherit it and whatnot. Um, but I think they should be focusing kind of on the root causes of the inequality than, than trying to, you know, fix it, you know, kind of do this whole redistribution of wealth thing. I think that would be really negative. Uh, I think it would hurt our productivity and our incentives in the end. So uh, I think more can maybe be done. I think maybe the uber wealthy can pay a little bit more. Like I'm talking the, 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 the top tax bracket, like should not be, yeah. you know, in the 400,000s, right? Like there's a huge difference mm-hmm. between obviously both wealthy between like a family making 500 K with three kids going to college, then like, someone pulling in 20 million a year. Um, so I think maybe mm-hmm. in that sense, like we can do a little bit more, uh, but in the end, then it just, it depends on the efficacy of the programs that the government's running. Uh, so I think mm-hmm. I really think in the end, it's really about like opportunity zones and, and things like that, that enable people to participate in the market economy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right now, there are a few movements advocating for healthcare for all and housing for all. And I'd like to know, do you view things like healthcare or housing as human rights or as commodities? If you view them as commodities, how does the free market increase access to them? And if you view them as human rights, is the U.S. government equipped to secure healthcare or housing for all? Yeah, definitely would not consider them rights. I've talked about this before. Uh, I'm pretty much a believer only in, uh, in negative rights, you know, things that mm-hmm. cannot be done to you. I think we run into a really slippery slope when we address positive rights. Uh, you know, so if you have a right to some service like healthcare, uh, then that by nature, then you're forcing someone to provide a service for you, which you can just, you know, sniff out is pretty inherently messed up. Uh, cause then that just gets into like, you have a right to force someone else to do something. And then like, what's their right to not do it? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that gets into tricky situations, but at the same time, just cause something's not a right doesn't mean we shouldn't try to provide it for everyone. Like, I think the government should be trying to work with the market to provide affordable health care and housing for everyone. Like, so I think we get a lot of flack on the right for saying, like, no, it's not a right. I just think it's like, it's really tricky when you start saying everything's a right uh, and enforcing everything upon them. But I think, you know, the market can obviously do a lot. I think the market has reduced prices for a lot of, a lot of things uh, with healthcare and housing. It's just, obviously, we're still running into a lot of problems. Uh, so I, you know, I'm a pretty big believer in private public partnerships. I'm not, I don't really specialize on the housing and the, the healthcare stuff. I know that like at Gen Z GOP, we have a, a healthcare platform that basically incentivizes something like, uh, Massachusetts has a, like a, it's basically Obamacare on the state level. Uh, I'm trying mm-hmm. to work with, you know, subsidized insurance programs. I definitely would not be a supportive of Medicare for all. It's just, I think extremely unrealistic in terms of how much it costs. And I don't really trust the government to run that when they can't run like veterans affairs, uh, healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say, 
I like to frame it around like, no, they're not rights, but that also doesn't mean we shouldn't try for everyone to have them. And I think there's ways for mm-hmm. the government to work with the private sector to do what's best because, you know, obviously if you look at history, like the private sector is a lot better at providing better and affo- more affordable housing um, than like, you know, communist countries were. Uh, and then mm-hmm. in terms of healthcare, I think it's the same thing. Like, uh, I think we do a really good job on the healthcare in, in, in certain sections, like, you know, the, the vaccines that so we're, we're going to be the first country to roll out a vaccine, but at the same time, it looks like very inequitable. Um, so I think that uh, we, we really need to work on private public partnerships. So, you know, I'll push back against kind of the, the Medicare for all people on that. Mm-hmm. So right now with the pandemic, basically everything is closed, but essential workers still remain at the front line. So nurses, warehouse workers, bus drivers, etc. These jobs are often low paid and additionally, People of color are often overrepresented in them. My question is, has this situation changed how you view labor and the labor market? Not really. I have multiple summer experiences working in these kind of jobs. Like I, I worked again this summer at a FedEx warehouse, like three in the morning to nine in the morning. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's pretty low paying, uh, like just by observation too. like you can definitely see a, a higher proportion of minority groups, um, and, you know, people of color and you know, I would definitely say that my job was paid a lot better than minimum wage just be, by nature of like the time and, and what the job entailed physically. Um, and, you know, I, I think it definitely made me realize like, wow, like these people, you know, myself included for that summer have to put our lives at risk. I mean, not for me, I'm pretty healthy, but and, and go to this job every day. You know, I think we got like a, a $2 increase in pay per hour for, for a few months, but then it went away, which is really odd because I don't know, the pandemic never really got better. I, I don't really know what the, mm-hmm. the mindset was behind it, but uh, I don't think it really changed my opinion on it. Obviously, I think it's really un- unfortunate that, you know, people work 40 hours a week and they can't afford basic things. But at the same time, I haven't really heard great proposals from people that kind of tout this a lot. Like, you know, raising the minimum wage is not going to do anything when all the prices go up along with it. You know, you're just kind of uh, inflating. So, you know, I-, I would say it kind of made me value more like what these people do for, uh, you know, the economy and, and, and on an everyday basis that we kind of just look away from. But I don't think it really changed like any like economic views I have about labor and things like that. Like, if anything, it made me pretty like more anti-union. I don't know if that's part of this whole thing because you know, I'm just comparing like to UPS, which was, you know, obviously our competitor, they paid less and you had to pay dues. So I was like, what's the point of joining a union if you're going to end up less money and protection in the end? So mm-hmm. yeah, so I definitely was like part of that this summer. It was good to see like firsthand what it was like, you know, wearing a mask and everything and at work and it, it sucked, but um, I don't think it really changed any big picture views of like any like labor, things like that. But I, I'm definitely sympathetic to big companies paying a little bit more uh, when people are putting their mm-hmm. lives at risk, especially because a lot of these companies are making more by nature of their business model. Like, yeah. You know, FedEx, like shipping, you know, Amazon, obviously, like people are not going to, to big box stores as much. So no, I would have mm-hmm. liked to see that. I don't know how much the government's really going to do to force people to pay more. I, I'm pretty supportive of like incentives to pay employees more. Um, then you're paying your executives maybe an extra, like, you know, thousands of stock shares. But, uh, I, mm-hmm. I don't think it really changed my model from like a big government perspective, like minimum wages and things like that. Cause I just don't really see the argument in terms of how that's going to help people, you know, have greater purchasing power. Mm-hmm. And I just have two more questions. The first is why do you view government as a good avenue for social change? as opposed to, say, being an activist or working in a nonprofit, for example? 
Yeah, I mean, I see multiple avenues. Obviously, I'm not really going to be like in politics, politics per se going forward. I kind of, I'm involved now. I think that's the best way for people our age to kind of have an impact and, and get involved in like issues like this. Uh, whereas, you know, I probably want to end up more on the policy side of thing, like working in a, in a government department or, or even an NGO or, or something. There's a lot of avenues for what I want to do. So I wouldn't necessarily like one's better over the other. I think that obviously the government is the monopoly on power and they have a lot of influence and, and policy outcomes. But you know, even as someone, like I said earlier, like the market is still a pretty influential force and, and there's a lot of good done by, you know, the private sector. Uh, but I think for me, it just came down to like, that's where you can have an impact given our political yeah. system is, is on, you know, our electoral democracy and everything going into that. Whereas like, I can't really like tell Amazon what to do right now. And I'm like, you know, 20 years old. But you can definitely impact elections and, and discourse about issues and, and press legislators to go that way because they, by nature, have to represent you, whereas companies don't. So I think that's kind of why I chose this field to get into at a young age is just trying to get involved and, and learn what I can from other people. And, I, and I'm really uh, driven by the discourse factor because I think it's worsening. Even among our, I thought our age would be a little bit better than what I see about you know from some old people, but... Uh, it's increasingly frustrating seeing people just like demonize the other side. Obviously, if you're like a crazy extremist, like fine, but you should be demonized. But I, I think that's been like what's kind of holding me to the cause. It's just trying to mm-hmm. create something that so that we can actually debate the issues in the future. Thank you. And I just have one more question because I'm curious. You're studying African politics and development, and I'm wondering why this issue area? Why are you so passionate about it? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I get this question a lot. Uh, so uh, I would say I, for a while, just like kind of thinking about what I want to do when I was in high school, really was interested in kind of building institutions and, and kind of creating growth and helping other people in and, and a big picture. I know you can do that through like charities and things like that's very short term and, and actually doesn't really get to the root cause of things. Like I'm very big on looking at root causes of if um you know lack of development i think it's just kind of one of the social injustices that pains me the most is, is poverty and on a wide scale basis so you know obviously you could study that at a domestic level i i'm just very enamored by like international relations and kind of how all those puzzle pieces fit together uh, in terms of the continent itself you know it's still the most underdeveloped continent in the world i think it's the most misunderstood too it's kind of treated as a monolith when you grow up in like middle school or whatever you think about africa like if you polled a bunch of middle schoolers in the United States, I think a lot of them would like picture a village with a hut or something like that, which is just obviously true in certain circumstances, but it's extremely urbanized now and a uh, very young population. So it's kind of just treated in this really like antiquated way. And so I think that's what mm-hmm. drew me to it too. It's just, it's just how it's treated is kind of mythical in a sense. Uh, and I was just really drawn mm-hmm. toward um, uh, a, a lot of uh, the positive aspects too. There's a lot of, you know, rapid economic growth that's going on. Uh, so I want to be a part of that and, and also do something that could kind of relate with what the, the U.S. is doing in that sense. So, yeah, I just, as, as I've studied it more and more, I've become more interested in it. I think it's just there's it's just kind of a puzzle that um, um, people don't really know much about. And I've learned more about like giving agency mm-hmm. to those countries and not doing this in like a neocolonial way. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really mm-hmm. what it is. I'm just really interested in like shaping institutions instead of like, you know, with poverty in the United States, we're already our institutions are kind of already set and molded pretty long. I mean, they're being tested a lot right now, as we all know, but mm-hmm. they're, they're holding strong. So I think I'm less interested in kind of working with what we already have, but being able to formulate the institutions in the first place uh, so that you can, you know, sustain a better future for the citizens there. So I think that's just kind of mm-hmm. creating something. That's a big reason I like loved creating this organization is that I can kind of craft it from the start, you know, the different departments and everything. And 
um, you know, I'm really passionate about doing that. That sounds really interesting. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mike. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely.